Hello everybody and welcome to the 149th edition of the Frank and Stan chat. And for those of you watching on video, uh, you will notice that at the bottom of the screen, we have Professor Jackie Carter. Hello, Jackie. Hello, morning. Hi, Jackie. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, for those of you, again, watching on the video, in the top left-hand corner of my screen is my old friend, Old. Old. I know, Stan. How are you, Stan? It's coming up to my birthday, so yeah, you'll be right. <laughs> Officially, <laughs> I am old. Um, I'm, I'm good. It's a, it's a good week this week. Yeah. Um, I can't think why it's a good way. I've been doing some stuff for a conference that we're doing and, and that advert's gone out now. So that feels as though there's a weight off my mind. It's a bit late. I'm just hoping people like me react <laughs> at short notice better than long notice. Well, it's funny because uh, I'm speaking at this conference, Jackie, and I, uh, my brother, who's been a guest here a couple of times, and he's, he's not very well at all at the moment, but he wrote a, a chapter out of a book called Watchdogs or Visionaries, and uh, it talks about the history of uh, of inspection over the years in Wales, this is. Um, and I was talking to him last night. He's, he wanted me to pass his best wishes on to you, Stan, because oh. actually, as you have said, that you probably would be a better friend with him if you'd met him before me. Yeah. So I, <laughs> and he's picked that up. But anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, so it's, I'm glad it's been a good week. It's been a quieter week, I think, in education circles. But, of course, we've had local elections yesterday and the results are coming through at the moment. But uh, anyway, before we get into uh, what's caught our eye, Jackie, can you just give us a little summary of who you are and your sort of career? Because it's quite an interesting journey, isn't it? OK, so who am I and what's my career? So I started my um professional life I did I did a mathematics degree okay I did a mathematics with its applications degree uh, way back in the 70s and then I didn't know what to do with that so I drifted into teaching having always said that I wouldn't be a teacher okay and I managed to get <laughs> onto um, a PGCE for secondary education course two days before it started um, and that was down in Swansea in Wales so I did my PGC training and then became a teacher in a secondary school and I taught in a big a large comprehensive school with a sixth form in Cardiff for three and a half years and then my personal circumstances changed I found myself um, with two small children on my own wow. so I uh, went back into doing education I did an NVQ do you remember NVQ yes. it's a national vocational yeah, yeah. qualification and I was doing that while the boys were in nursery um, and I became quite good at computing all right you know when we were using programs like basic and um, yeah procedural languages so I did that and then on the back of that I applied to do a conversion master's course at the University of Cardiff so I did um, an MSc in computing and threw myself into it, loved it, because it sort of was an applied right, yeah. base of how <laughs> to use computing to do interesting research. Um, came second in the year, which I was really proud wow. of. And somebody suggested <clears throat> that I do a PhD, and I'd never had that in my line of sight. I'd never aspired to do that. I'd not done well in my first degree. You know, I'd scraped a 2-2. Um, anyway, I did. I moved back up north, did a PhD. And it was post Chernobyl. So in 1986, when Chernobyl happened, they gathered, gathered a lot of data, spot measurement data, but didn't know what to do with it. So I came along and worked with the National Radiological Protection Board, as was, to do an applied PhD looking at how to use computers, uh, geographic information systems to model where you would have to move livestock and people from 
to keep them oh, safe wow. because wow. of the fallout of the radiation <laughs> that had come down through the plumes. And this was after Chernobyl, so it was what what would we do if there was another nuclear incident? Um, got that, and then w- came to the University of Manchester, where I've been since 1996, but not as an academic. I spent 18 years in what they call professional services. So I was de- developing services to use data in teaching and research. And that took me up to 2013, where I won a big grant from the Nuffield Foundation um, and became an academic. So I didn't become an academic until my 50s and a professor in my mid-50s. And maybe we'll talk about the reason why and what I do. I'm passionate about education and I'm really most passionate about the application of knowledge to complex business problems, research problems, whatever. It's the application of knowledge that really drives me. Now, one of the things that we've connected with, Stan, is over you, you run a project or you do some work at the university trying to give some of your undergraduates opportunities to work in business. Can you just say a little bit about that? Yeah, that's the thing that um, sort of gets me out of bed in the morning. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm proud of everything I've ever done. It's the thing I'm most proud of. And I've developed this work placement program. Uh, where our undergraduate students who are studying social science, so they're doing sociology, politics, um, criminology, uh, economics, you know, and they want to know what the value is of learning uh, data analysis. So we teach them data analysis, statistics, but we don't call it that. We teach them data analysis in the classroom. And then my program gives them the opportunity to go out into the workplace, so public-private third sector, including government departments, including big businesses. We've had people placed at the World Bank. We've had people placed in the BBC, media services, the sorts of organisations they might graduate into. It opens a door through a work placement, which we call a data fellowship, where they get eight weeks in the summer between the end of their second year of their degree and the start of their third year. Um, and they learn to fly. And we we put they, we pay them living wage. So it's a paid, we call it a data fellowship. Right. And it opens their eyes to what they are capable of doing, given the tools and knowledge that we have been teaching them. But so much more than that, as you can imagine. Yeah. You know, it, it puts them into contact with professionals. It helps them see what it means to be a government data analyst or a social researcher or, you know, what data journalism really looks like behind the scenes or if they're in a business, how um, customer data is being collected and used to inform the business to improve um, their performance um, and everything. It just sort of literally blows wide open their eyes to the the art of the possible and gives them the confidence, the skills, the experience to to understand what they're doing and why it matters and how they are contributing. Uh, now you won a it was uh, you won an award recently, didn't you? Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I, we didn't set this up. I am embarrassing <laughs> Jackie here, but. You, what was that award for? Just explain oh, what it was for. It was an award. I went down to London. It was called the FDM Every Woman Award. And I won the award in the academic category. And the funny, the anecdote about this is I, I go down to London on my own. Um, and I've got hidden disabilities. So actually traveling is really hard for me. Um, navigating around cities is really hard for me. But I go along and I'm sitting on the table with other people I've never met before. And I was so utterly convinced that I wasn't going to get this award. <laughs> so you can imagine, right, the wine was flowing, lovely conversation. <laughs> and it was an award for women in STEM. And I'm not 
no longer a woman in STEM. I'm a woman from STEM and I'm supporting the acquisition of STEM skills for doing data analysis, but in the social sciences. So I absolutely utterly convinced myself I wasn't going to get it. And then they called my name out. <laughs> Did you have to give a speech? <laughs> yeah. No, I tossed it up. To the stage i was at the back of the room you know the, the table where you'd put the guests at a wedding that you didn't know very well or you just felt obligated to invite. Near, near the kitchen <laughs> yeah i was around the back of the room i managed to get up to the front onto the stage with help and then i used it i used the platform to say everybody in this room you know the reason i'm so proud of this award is because i'm not working with women in stem i'm working with women in social sciences who can take up careers in STEM, and I've got a decade's worth of data to show that, and I'm still in touch with all of those alumni. So, you know, please, if there's one thing you do when you go away tonight, challenge your own. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, uh, sorry, STEM, we'll get on to what's caught but, No, but, it's all right. Yeah. I'm um, a bit worried about what's caught my eye now. No, well, <laughs> I, I, well, for me, it's the, the, um, our son... Um, uh, did quite well academically when he was doing his A-levels and then he went off to university, did all right. Um, and um, uh, But what, what happened was he wasn't quite sure what to do. So he had that sort of period where he was sort of had some fairly sort of just jobs just to fill, just to get some money and to fill the time. But he went and studied uh, for a, 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 an MA at uh, Man Met. It was in digital broadcasting. And what attracted him was the fact that when he was about 14, he developed a website about Russian football. He became obsessed with Russian football. And of course, as parents, you think, what the hell is he doing up there? You know, what the hell's going on? Um, but all of that, and it's a, I think you're going to probably get into it, all of that was a very sort of odd journey. It meandered across loads of things, you know, and he's actually a social scientist. But actually, he now is a, a UX developer for the government he, he i think he's working for defra at the moment but you know actually you could never as a parent have predicted that that that's where he would have ended up you know he, but actually i think it was the fact that we were fortunate to give him time to be able to to actually meander around that period where he was staying with us afterwards you know we didn't we were fortunate we didn't have to put pressure on him to get out and earn some money, you know, get on your own. You know, there was the time for him to find that place. Mm. Um, so, I, uh, yeah, and we're fortunate because a lot, a lot of kids just don't have that time, do they? The pressure's on. Yeah. You know, you've got to start earning, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, you're right. I, that's a really serious point. And that's why the, the data fellowships, I mean, you know, the, the reason I win prizes is not because I've set it up, but 25% of those data fellows out of 330, 330 who are placed now in um, eight years, because we didn't do it the year of COVID, um, have been from underrepresented groups. Right. And 70% across the cohort and, and often higher um, have been uh, female. So, you know, the, it's enabling the creation of a diverse talent pipeline into industries that need the skills that they say they need, but they're looking only in one place or only looking predominantly anyway in STEM. But a lot of these students um, use that as a springboard opportunity. Not only does it give them confidence and contacts and they come back and they realize the potential that they have that they didn't know before, but they come back with um, 
opportunities that they are now aware of that they weren't, but contacts that they've made in those eight weeks that can help support and open the door, including me. That's what I do. I'm a door opener. That's that's all I do. I I create opportunities. I try to be the person in my students' lives that I wished I'd had when I was, you know, I was the first of my um, family to go to university, first out of six kids. So if I did it and got to where I am, I need to be paying it forward and, and giving back. Fabulous. Well, should we, close the, should we close the recording now? Yeah, let's, let's, let's stop. <laughs> uh, but anyway, let's squeeze in. Let's caught our eye. So what's caught your eye this week, Stan? <laughs> well, I, I hate to say a data set after all that. <laughs> someone who, who struggles with uh, with Excel. Um, Frank got some information from, from Ofsted around uh, grades given for the various judgments for the last, well, it actually goes back a long way, the, long the way. data set, and sent me a link to this huge data set <laughs> saying, can you can you make any sense out of this? <laughs> so I had a, a wonderful play, and it was just a play with, with losing columns and matching columns and sorting columns to look at if grades have changed significantly since the tragedy in November where um, a head teacher took her own life as a result of uh, Ofsted, and whether there'd been some softening of, of grades since then in response. Um, and because I'm I'm not a data analyst, because I don't know when something's significant or not, I just produced all the figures and sent them to Frank to say, "There, yeah, have, have a look at those." But then when when we when I started playing with the, the figures and looking at them, I, I just look for patterns. That's all I do. And if if there's a pattern there, I'm interested. So there was a pattern, and the pattern appears to show that there were that grades generally were slightly higher from the months after uh, October. And in fact, it, it it appears to show that October. grades in October were really harsh, which then means. <laughs> That needs a deeper dig in, you know, and it could be something as simple as as inspectors being trained, having some training in a particular area that that then meant uh, they were more. Let's say, let's be fair and say that they were more accurate in their judgments and found more deficiencies in schools than they had done before. But the other thing that interested me it was a column that just said yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, all the way down, which was safeguarding was adequate safeguarding, not a grade, a yes, no. So I looked at how many schools, because it's headline news, actually have been described as, as inadequate for safeguarding. And then to see if it's a pattern. And in 1920, when not that's the school year 1920, not the year 1920, uh, when they started making this judgment, there were 12 schools identified as being inadequate. And that would have been, a very, school, big, that would have been a very big uh, number of schools because that was not during, um, I don't think that was during COVID, was it? Uh, oh, it might have been. It might have no. been. Well, that might have been, mightn't it? Well, in 2021, in the whole school year, there were 20 schools identified. These are primary schools. Oh, right. 20 primary schools. In 21-22... There were 32 primary schools. And in the current year, there's already 35, of which uh, 19, I think, were in that, that October, November period. Right. So it, it 
it doesn't either. And there are two things running, I think, alongside each other here. One is once schools heard about schools be, being made inadequate because of safeguarding, you'd have expected safeguarding to have become more proficient. Schools become more proficient in making sure things are done properly. So I'm absolutely positive there's been an element of that. So schools have, have improved their safeguarding. But equally, I think there must be a, a more thorough or... Um, let's say, an easier way to find schools having difficulty with it because the rate of which schools are going into trouble is rising at the same time that I would think schools are getting better. Yes. So there's something happening there that that doesn't feel quite right. But you also found a report, didn't you, that had a rather strange grade profile? Oh, there's there's a few. There's, there's one school in particular. I, I do think, I, I do know the name of the school because I, but I think it's one that's been in the news. Um, but it was outstanding for quality of education, good for behaviour and, and attitudes, outstanding for personal development, and yet overall inadequate because safeguarding was, was not adequate. And the other thing that came through with these was was a, a pattern again that behaviour and personal development grades are always higher Mm, yeah, than true. than the other grades. Now mm. that to me says either those they're not being inspected equally because you'd expect a school to be if they a school's good, you'd expect it to be good at all aspects. Yeah. Or maybe one aspect that was a little weak. But this is consistent across uh, however many schools it was, close to five hundred schools, I think. Um so th there's something I think there in what are we judging and why are we judging it? if if, um, for instance, behaviour and personal development is always better than another judgment, then we don't need to make those judgments, do we? We we, we need to go to the one judgment that yes. that is is less than the others. And and you know, if we're going to make things better and more efficient and easier for schools, we need to get away from this many grades. But you can see when when Amanda Spielberg says Spielman rather says we Steve can't Spielberg. Yeah, Amanda <laughs> Spielman says we can't get away from the one grade. It's because that drives all the data. So yeah. all the data of thousands of inspections are down to numbers of one, two, three, and four now. Yeah, but it, the the narrative at the moment um, is that you know behaviour is appalling in schools. You know, attendance is really poor. You know, uh, uh, it's much lower than it, I've ever known it in my in my lifetime. But um, these the analysis is not revealing that. No, but it, it, you know it's just the the analysis not highlighting that as the the major weakness. You know, so um, but anyway, this is the sort of stuff, is it that your undergraduate? You, is Stan a future undergraduate? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that one the f first thing I'd say actually um, in response to those raw numbers that you've given me. And this is sort of um, what we teach right at the start of any course is there has to be some context. So what you'd want to know is in those years, 1920, 21, 22, did the number of offset inspections fall? So, you know, mm. you need you sort of need those numbers as a percentage of the total number because it might actually be masking the fact that there were fewer offset inspections anyway. Um, but then disaggregating, like you have done across those sort of four key areas, that's where the interesting mm. stuff 
happens. And so, you know, if this were a project that we're given to a student, which is entirely feasible, this is exactly the sort of thing. We Come give on, Stan, I, I, can feel an, I feel an MA coming. Oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 I feel an eight-week project coming on. If only we'd sort of caught this sooner. This I, is I feel it's coming on, but not for me. I, I no, 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 exactly. For a student to dig yeah. into the data. We yeah. had a student years ago take a tranche of data. They were working with the um, IPPR North, the think tank yes, in the North, yes. Um, and they uncovered the early years gap statistics. So they took a whole range of data across early years, across um, the whole of England. I think it was just England. And they found the performance gap in um, early years for what, what we all know now to be the case, but it hadn't been discovered until then, um, where students in the southeast of England are already six points ahead mm -hmm. by the end of early years compared to their northern counterparts. You know, and that really hit the headlines and has been picked up by um, government departments and so on and D DFE. Um, and this is the sort of thing you're so right. It's about finding patterns, interesting patterns, and then finding out why. You know, the pattern in, its, in and of itself is fine, but what's causing that? Is it the measurement? Is it the way people are uh, gathering the data? Is it something to do, you know? It, is there a, what is yeah. sad here, though, is that, you know, we, we, Stan and I um, have been quite critical of Ofsted following that tragic event in Kent because of the lack of engagement. Now, mm. this data, um, uh, I knew that there were quarter, uh, well, I think it's half yearly, whatever it may be, a termly release of data. I wasn't aware that they were releasing this monthly data. And so when I sent my FOI request in, it was a fantastic service because about five minutes later, I get the link to the, and it's on their website, but it's, but there is no narrative in here on the on the uh, uh, broader, you know, longer term um, uh, data. There is a narrative, and I understand the the complexities of monthly returns and everything. You know, it can fluctuate, but actually, that would have been uh, that that data that we've now got would, should have been the area for them to focus in on to 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 reassure the sector that actually there has not been significant shift, if that's the case, you know, from one month to another, you know, so there wasn't anything unusual about the autumn of 2022 compared to other years, but there's been nothing. Yeah. Well, you should make clear, Frank, which was a surprise to me, because when, when you sort of said they, they do a monthly release, I thought it would just be the data that had, that had arrived that month, but it's actually just an update each time with the latest month added. So this goes back, well, a long, to, long way. A long, long time. Years. Yeah. years, yeah. And years. Oh, it's more than it's. It, I mean, I stopped looking at, at um, I think, nineteen twenty, but it goes on earlier mm. than that. But mm. of course, because the date, because the data collected is different, you get a lot that just say null or a number nine in. That that means I'm, I'm presuming that means that wasn't inspected at the time or that judgment wasn't made. So. You're limited to, to really from 2020 onwards. And the point Jackie makes about context is that obviously there was a new framework introduced. Was it 2018? 20? These things affect those grades, but the the grade profiles go back, you know, to earlier frameworks as well. Anyway, we, Stan and I could witter on about this for yeah, you know, as we do every Friday morning. We know nothing but get excited about some, some <laughs> and we get. Worried I, I, I have to say, I am a, a frustrated mathematician. I did A level maths and then didn't pursue it after that, um... mainly because when I went to college, I, to, I wanted to do a B.Ed. and I, I said I wanted to do maths, uh, and they just laughed and said, "We we don't do maths to that level." <laughs> 
Right, Jackie. When I arrived for interview, they didn't tell me that until I arrived at interview. And they said, oh, we couldn't interview you for the math, so we're interviewing you for geography. All <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> okay. I haven't done geography since O level, but hey, <laughs> let's have a go. Jackie, what's caught your eye this week? Okay, so I do a lot of networking on LinkedIn, um, and uh, partly because of the networks I have, because of the work I do and the outreach I do. You know, I'm connected to some really interesting people, so I sort of fo- follow people on LinkedIn who I am interested in. And I had a conversation uh, with a woman earlier this week, and she posted as a result of that conversation a uh, post this morning on LinkedIn, which caught my eye as I was getting up. And one of the things that I feel strongly about, and I think I'm starting to use my platforms to get heard about, is ensuring that if we want to, if we want to get more diversity of thought into careers, you know, regardless of the pathways into those careers, and where those careers might involve, let's say, tech or data, okay, we need to be persuading recruiters that it's important to go beyond just looking at STEM pipelines. So I feel really strongly that I've been in this space for over 30 years. You know, my first dissertation when I was doing my PGC that I talked about was about um, the achievement of girls in maths. All right. The the dial has moved and girls do very well in maths at GCSE. Um, But the narrative, we keep coming back to narrative and context, don't we? The narrative around we need more women in STEM, you know, is still about... Um, 30-year-old ideas, instead of repeating what we know not to work, one of the things I would like to see and and was on this post this morning is more diversity of thinking um, around where we find those people. Okay, so it's just like you you were talking about your son there, right, Frank? It's just like, you know, your son was motivated by something. He was motivated by Russian football, did you say? So if instead we focus on what truly motivates um, young people, and, and that might be languages, it might be geography, it might be history, it might be, um, in my case, social sciences, you know, which they don't tend to do in school, but they can do at university. And if we then um, get them interested substantively in their subject and then think about developing the skills to give them for going into those careers, it might take longer, just in the way that your son took longer to find what he wanted to do. But aren't we then going to be bringing in some really amazing talent into the organisations, into public-private third sector? And everything I've done, you know, evidences that. If you take somebody who's really interested in criminology, they may have come from a, a background where they've, they've seen this, they've witnessed it firsthand, they have lived experience of it. You then give them the theoretical understanding and then you give them the tools the practical and applied tools to do the analysis then you open doors to them through the work placement program and things like that you start to join all those dots at the right bit of the education cycle these people go off and they become the change makers they really do because they've got that holistic approach to understanding complexity of problems and what they need to solve it and just to finish and wrap up with that because you know as as there's more discussion around AI and chat GBT and tools like that. It isn't enough just to have um, computationally brilliant people. Yes. We need to have people who can understand 
the relevance of the impact of new technologies on businesses and organisations and society. And that's where the social sciences and humanities excel. So that's what's caught my eye. You know, uh, things uh. that I've been talking and um, writing about for a while are suddenly becoming mainstream, and I feel like I'm right in there and I need to have my say. Well, it, it, it's interesting because... Um, um... With the work I do in Blackpool, uh, Rachel Sylvester, the uh, Times um, education editor, um, she led on the Times Education Commission. And so we hosted Rachel uh, uh, in August of last, I think it was last year or perhaps the year before. But anyway, what happened was we ended up with some of the large business uh, business leaders meeting her to see she was trying to tease out the flow of children into business in Blackpool. And we had a, a guy from Atos, which is um, a big uh, a business, worldwide business, but it's got a big centre in Blackpool. It's got a digital platform, and that's where it sort of is managed. And he said, uh, it was really refreshing. He said, um, actually, one of the things we're not interested in is people have been to university and have got a first class or a 2-1 in computer science. We're awash with them. Yeah, absolutely. We're, what we're looking for is people who have had a very unusual path. Yeah. You know, people who have actually sort of got skill, a skill set or an attitude or an idea that we haven't got. Why would we yeah. want to just yeah. pile up all our computer scientists, you know? Um, the, and he was making the point, you know, AI is changing or our thinking about this and we need fresh thinking to actually sort of address some of the underlying problems that computer scientists are not taught. Absolutely. So I thought it was really refreshing. She she was quite shocked because this idea about we've got to do more STEM, you know, we, we you know, as if that in itself is going to be enough. And actually what the STEM that offered in school, I don't know, but is it sufficiently interesting enough for kids to want to do it? And and computer science is a good example where we have 20% of students are currently studying computer science and the quality of that of that course I suspect is a little bit suspect and actually women girls are not choosing it no. you know so you know if if it was an interesting relevant application type course that you could see a reason for doing it I suspect loads of kids would be interested in it but it's not you know and it, no. it, it appeals to mathematicians don't we have to widen our our thoughts on on what diversity means? You've just triggered something in me because I I was sitting in a governors meeting. You, you'll know that the DFE have now said that governors uh, schools should publish the diversity um, data on the governing body or the or the the mat, and we got a, a series of questions and we sat around the room. The governors are very uh, animated because they they want to to embrace diversity in a school that, that's mainly uh, feeds a, a, a white British community. But what was interesting was when we started to talk about diversity, it was things that they wanted to include, which was diversity of experience, diversity of of role, diversity of, of uh, careers, because those were very diverse within this group of 12, 13 people, even though they're ethnic and their disability and whether they were pregnant or not <laughs> was not very diverse. And, and it was, you know, we're actually creating something that says diversity, which actually doesn't re doesn't represent the diverse nature of a group of people. Mm. And I think we need we need to widen our view of, of what diverse means, because, as Jackie said, diverse thinking 
is really important. Yeah. You know, in in a team, if you if you got somebody who thinks differently to the rest of the team, wow. that's the where the generation of ideas comes from. I I, I, I built a career on saying I haven't really thought very much about this, but I've got an idea. <laughs> you know, well, and, and, actually, and, and there was something else I read this week about, um, and and this is sort of like a gender issue. I don't know. Um, I always try and steer clear of this because it always feels as I'm sort of not not really considered enough. But about during Zoom meetings and whatever, uh, uh, men appear from researchers are showing this week that they're the ones that are quite willing to interrupt. You know, put <laughs> forward. Oh, you surprised me. <laughs> Whereas you know, but but um, but uh, women are much more. They come over as much more considered. Wait for their moment. You know, as I'm always conscious of interrupting. You know, I, 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 when I read the research, I thought, yeah, I could see myself in that. Mm. It's yeah. interesting, isn't yeah. it? There's uh, good research to show that face to face. I don't know about online, but if you go to listen to a presentation, a speech, um, a talk, um, if the first person who puts their hand up and asks a question is male, then it tends to be followed by males. Oh, okay. Wow. Whereas if the first person who puts their hand up and asks a question is female, there tends to be a much more even female male um, response from the floor. So I I use that. I often use that as a starter in talks that I give. You know, let's have everybody put the hand up and often choose a woman. I I will take that. I will yeah. take that on board. Google spent an absolute fortune trying to find out what makes teams effective. And and they did they did all sorts they 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 put you know teams with with all had the same idea the same up and nothing worked but what they actually found was if everybody's ideas are shared if everyone has the opportunity to say what they think in a team it becomes the strongest team it can be mm. so it's actually about everybody contributing not having people dominate. Yeah. Do you know what we, we're heading for? One of the longest chats we've ever had. Do you like that? Yeah, actually, these are the best ones, Jackie. Because actually, we don't do these chats for other people. We this is sort of therapy for Stanley. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> anyway, what's caught, well. what's caught my eye is um, ne- well, next week we've got a special Frankenstein chat. It's with a, a guy called Dennis Sherwood, uh, who has written a book called Missing the Mark, and basically. It's about uh, the the subtitle is why so many school exam grades are wrong and how to get the grades that we can trust. And it relates to some work that Dennis has done around GCSE and A-levels. And I noticed this week that uh, Ofqual released information about the uh, proportion of students who were going to appeal on their grades. So there was a 23% reduction in the number of appeals on the grades um, to Ofqual. And it's interesting, I don't know if people are aware, but you know, um, we appealed, I think, for one of our children at A-level, and uh, but we had to pay. You know, So I, th- I think at the time it was about a hundred pounds or something. Uh, and of course that is a, a limiter straight away, isn't it? Yeah. You know, if you can, you know, if you can, if you've got the money, you know, you, you, you know, let's face it, if you've got uh, one child and they've done three A-levels, you know, uh, yeah. I don't know how much it is at the moment, but 300 quid is, you know, you're starting to talk about serious money, aren't you? So, but the the point I'm making here is that um, the, the, although the number of, the, of appeals that, that were sent through to Ofqual reduced, the actual number that was successfully overturned went up. And so the grade change increase went from 61% to 71%. Wow. Now, now that is high. 
isn't it? Yeah. So in yeah. effect, it's saying, well, everybody, everybody should go to appeal, you know, because actually chances are you'll get a better grade. Um, but actually, the, the issue here is, as Dennis will say next week, and I'm not going to sort of steal his thunder, but but the key issue here, if such a high proportion of grades are overturned when when an appeal is taken, what is the situation for those who don't appeal? And that's the basis of Dennis's research, that he has he has lost confidence in the accuracy of the grades that are awarded at GCSE and A-level. And he believes that they should be, they could be, and this is statistics here, depending on who marked them, they could be one grade higher or one grade lower. And all of that then is very, you know, very, is, I wouldn't say toxic, but it's a very unpleasant message to consider. And, and it's a sort of, for government, it's, it's a poisonous, you know, and, and for, for the world of uh, universities and for those that select students on the basis of the grades, that's a very unpalatable story to hear. And actually it does make you feel as though, going back to the point you make, Jackie, we need to make sure that when we're looking at the capabilities of people, we're not sort of led down a road whereby we place so much emphasis, and it leads into the Ofsted as well, isn't it, on one grade. You know, um, and, the, and, and, and actually it's not Amanda Spielman's fault that we've got these single grades in schools, but it's interesting that she was the, the boss at Ofqual before she became the boss at Ofsted, you know, and, and so I'm really looking forward to seeing Dennis next week because he's, he's a very fascinating uh, gentleman. But the point I'm making here is that, you know, there's statistics and you can lie with statistics. And you can tell whatever story you want. And really, I don't think the stories around appeals is telling a very good story, even though the headlines suggest that they might be. Can I just comment on one thing you said, yeah, which I was so pleased to hear you say, because very few people use the capabilities work, all right, when they're talking about education or transition into careers. And for me, um, there's still too much reliance on qualifications and competencies. And, you know, we've all three of us said today, haven't we, that people have squiggly careers. There's a great podcast series called Squiggly Careers. If you haven't come across it, listen listen to it or watch out for it um, and it is about giving people opportunities to achieve the capabilities and so by forever fixating on one aspect of the educational system you know be it grades or be it um, school type or you know um, subjects even we're forgetting that people are infinitely capable yes. now, who was it who said Edison if we only if we only did everything we were capable of capable of we would literally astound ourselves and that's how that's my whole approach if we can untap and the people that we are fortunate to teach and come across and educate and have contact with then it's not quite job done but it's part of job done yeah i i, I worked i, I nearly always refer back to this frank gets bored with it he's going to meet mark again but i work with some some um psych, sports psychologists who believe in playing to strengths so, so their whole concept is about you know play to your strengths, and it'll flood out any weaknesses. Yeah. And he influenced me quite a lot. So that when we were doing appraisals, he, first of all, he asked me, "When you do teacher appraisals, how much time do you spend on the strengths?" <laughs> like, well, none, because <laughs> <laughs> we look at what they're doing wrong, and then we try and correct it. So, 
when I was then working in the local authority and sort of a bit more flexibility, even though these people were still teachers, I was able to be more flexible over their appraisal. In out, in outdoor education, I said, right, in the appraisal this time, we're going to have uh, something about what, what the centre's doing well, but we're going to have what's your dream in your appraisal. What, what would your dream be? And one of the particular um, managers said... The dream would be to have uh, some more accommodation on on site, 12, 12 bedrooms, which would mean we could get another minibus full and we could, we, you know, it, it works. And now there is, a, I think it's, I think it was about £12 million worth of accommodation, ensuite accommodation overlooking Lake Windermere, all as a result of that one appraisal. Wow. Fantastic. Well, um, I'm, I'm, we've got one final item before we bring this to a close, and that is, Jackie, is there one thing that you'd like to do to improve education in in our country? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I was talking about this with my husband this morning. So if I were education minister for a day or something equivalent, yeah. okay, I would introduce the opportunity for every student to have an aspect of experiential learning Throughout oh, oh, you and Stan beating to the choir <laughs> <laughs> and fund it properly, and and you know, given my stats just on a small cohort alone, look what can be done. Look yeah. what the transformation that I have achieved in those three hundred and thirty people, young people's lives, and they're becoming the leaders of the future. They're taking that into them, uh, with them, into the organisations, um, and they. They wouldn't be there. They all say they wouldn't be doing what they're doing now if they'd not had that eight-week data fellowship um, experiential learning opportunity. And, you know, we all say we want it, but we need to fund it and make it happen. If I say we took reception children into Marks and Spencers to see how they did things when I was ahead, from the four- and five-year-olds telling the manager there how he could recycle better. (laughs) Amazing. Love it. Okay, well, it's been, uh, uh, you know, some of these, you know, every week is different. And I, I, I really feel as though we have really connected the three of us. I think there's, there has actually been sort of some, some themes running through this conversation which weren't planned. But actually, what, what for me has been so heartening is this sort of consideration about what a good education is. And I think that's what we've been trying to get to with our conversation today. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for joining us, uh, Jackie. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, and and we have a ne- we have a special next week, um, uh, which will come out before the next weekly edition. Um, but next is the hundred fiftieth next week, and we have Russell Harvey, um, who will be back for the third time. And it seems appropriate that Russell is the hundred and fiftieth. Yeah. Wow. So uh, um, we look forward to seeing you all next week. Uh, and enjoy the coronation weekend if you're going to enjoy it. Um, we, that's perhaps a discussion for next week, Stan, not for today. But anyway. Oh, I, I don't mind. If people enjoy it, they enjoy it. That's fine. I have no problem with it at all. Just actually, I won't be celebrating. It's brought our community together, I have to say. So we will all be out there on, it's going to be Monday, under a gazebo as it rains, I think. But we'll all be having a chat and getting to know each other a bit better. Anyway, thank you, Jackie. And uh, see you all next Thanks, week. Jackie. Bye-bye.